having a very exciting announcement this morning. As many of you know, a little over a year ago, Norflet came to uh, serve with us with his family as the director of worship arts. And it's been an amazing journey for me to get to know him a lot better over the last year. Uh, last month, Doug came to us as elders and said, I, I believe that we need to shift Norflet from the director of worship arts to the pastor of adult discipleship. As you know, we've launched, yeah, we've launched 90 or so small groups and we've had a vacancy there in a pastor slot for, uh, for quite some time. And the elders have unanimously affirmed that and we've talked to Norflet. And so starting, I guess, officially today, I'd like to announce to you that Norflet is our pastor of adult discipleship. Why don't you all just stand for a minute, and I'm just going to pray a blessing over him, and then we'll uh, sure hear more in the weeks and months to come of how this will play out for us. Lord, thank you for Narflet, his infectious love for you, his passion to be a person who is in your presence and hears from you. We thank you that you've given him an anointing and a calling as a pastor, and we've been the recipients of his teaching and that passion. We just pray that you would really use him to be a cover for our church over discipleship, that he would be a resource and a strength and a, and a blessing to those that are serving and to all adults that come to our church. So we just, um, we bless you. We thank you for Norflet, and we just pray your anointing upon his and his family's life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we got to clap better than that. <laughs> Norflet has been a uh, godsend to me and to this church, and I'm just so glad that uh, the next chapter is being written. And my little notes here just disappeared. Hey, I hope you are as excited and uh, feel the buzz around here with all the Church Without Curtain stuff going on. We have about 91 small groups that are going. Um, and I just want to encourage you that it's not too late for you. We, most of your groups met sometime last week for the first week, so it's still uh, a good time to jump in. So if you've been hesitant, but you think maybe you want to be a part of a small group, just walk right out the doors after the service, go right to the information counter and let Paula know, uh, whoever's at the counter, that you want to be a part of a group. And they'll plug you into a group uh, today and uh, get you rolling. You can even choose, uh, we have groups meeting almost every single day. So I also want to make sure um, that, that you are just aware of all the good things going on. We have a couple awesome retreats coming up in uh, uh, just a few months. And here's the deal. We have a men's retreat and a women's retreat. And Grace is typically um, slow to sign up. And the problem that causes with us is we have deposits that we have to make. We have rooms that we have to commit to. And it's always a bit of a, um, a gamble, for lack of a better word, to try to figure out. So if you know you're going, if you would just go to the kiosk and sign up, even if you weren't prepared to pay today, uh, we'd like you to pay today, but if you weren't prepared for that, that's fine. But we just need to know, hey, I'm committed. I've talked to so many of you who said, yeah, I'm going, yeah, I'm going, but we don't have your name on the list, and we just need to know uh, that you're going to be a part of the retreat. So immediately follow the service, men's retreat, women's retreat, uh, in the back, we'd love for you to sign up. Today we're going to look at the uh, fall of man the story of Adam and Eve, and it's a very familiar story, um, and so if you want to grab your Bibles, it's found in Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible, so it'll be easy for you to find, and while you're looking for it, I just want to give you a little bit of, uh, of what's going on. 
I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles every week, bring your readers every week, whatever you use to, uh, whether it's an iPad or iPhone and follow along, whatever you use at home is what I encourage you to bring here. I also want to encourage you to take notes. If you're taking notes in your Church Without Curtains book, you're on page 25 today, and you need, I need to let Roots know that they're dismissed. Thanks, Tony. He's standing in the dark there. I'm like, who's that man? What's he doing in the dark? So Roots, you're dismissed. Sorry, I forgot that. So bring your Bibles. Bring something to take notes on, page 25 in your book. Genesis 3, the fall of man. I say this all the time, but one of the dangers we have in our spiritual journey is familiarity. Familiarity actually breeds complacency. And complacency and, and indifference are really the cancers to spiritual growth. So let me try to explain that a little bit differently as opposed to using a, a Bible passage. Um, have you ever traveled somewhere and the landscape of where you, where you went is just like breathtaking, awe-inspiring. You just, you can't get enough of it. It's just like, I've never seen anything like this. I remember the very first time I, I had just started my business career and I went to Santa Barbara. Can we turn this echo down just a little bit? Because I hear myself twice and once is enough. Um, you're all agreeing with me. So I go to Santa Barbara and um, I'd never been to California. I'd never been anywhere where you could see mountains and the beach at the same time. And I just remember being so like, uh, taken back by this. I'm an outdoorsman. I, I love the beach. I love the woods. I love seeing God in nature. It's just part of how God has wired me. But on this particular trip, we played on this golf course. The name of the golf course is Sandpiper. And I brought a, a picture of the golf course. This is an actual picture of the, the golf course we're playing on. And really, it was fairway after fairway was like this. The, the, the fairways are cut off to the cliffs going down to the Pacific Ocean. And there's elevated cheese and greens that are cut out of the rocks. And I'm like, having a hard time playing golf, partly because I'm not a very good golfer, but more because I was just in awe of the landscape. And I'm with a bunch of these guys that live out there. And to be honest with you, they didn't even really notice. And I would talk about it and they'd be like, yeah, 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 let's just play some golf. This landscape, this landscape had become so familiar to them that it just was no big deal. And I think this is what happens with us in Bible stories. And so think about it this way. If you ever traveled, you noticed who's always pulled over at the, at the lookout station? You know, you're driving down the road, it says uh, scenic lookout. It's never the locals. It's always the tourists, right? Because they're seeing it for the first time. And what I think we need to do is we need to be intentional about pulling over and sort of taking in the beauty of a story. So we look at a story like the fall of man, and it's easy for us just to take it all for granted. If you grew up in the church, you've heard this story hundreds and hundreds of times. And if you didn't grow up in the church, you've probably still heard the story hundreds of times. So it's so familiar to us. Has it lost its wow factor? Do we still look at the story and think to ourselves, and that is just absolutely amazing what God has done through this story. So I want you to, to, to get the story in a, in a new sort of way, and I'm praying that for you. So I'm going to pray that right now. Lord, I just pray that as we look at a very familiar story, a story that almost anyone in this room could tell and probably get most of the details correct, that you would still bring something new into our spirit, that you would, would show us something new today as we look at a familiar story, that that familiarity would not breed any kind of complacency or, or, uh, or being distracted or, or they're not really tying into it. Because, Lord, this is such an amazing picture of who you are and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from, the, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? He answered, I I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree to eat, which that's one of my favorite lines, like, it's her fault. You gave her to me, it's her fault. So you see a lot of blame shifting going on here. And so the Lord looks at the woman and says, well, what is this you've done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the first thing I want us to get from this story is that this is a historical story. It's not just a, an allegory. It's not just a, a, some fairy tale. It's not a story that's meant to just give us some, some clues about God. It is a real historical story that Adam and Eve are historical as Abraham Lincoln is. And so if we start there, it changes the story a little bit. So we, we got to actually take a step of faith and say to ourselves that this actually happened, that Adam and Eve really did exist. They really are our, our forefathers, the first uh, to be, and, and they, they really did come. We also have to agree that this is not your everyday story. Nothing like this has ever happened before, and nothing like this will ever happen again. It's a once-in-history kind of event. It it can't happen again. And the truth is, if you were watching this story unfold, uh, you would be in amazement, right? I mean, there's a talking snake, right? And the people are naked, and God shows up on the scene, and all of that would cause you to kind of be in awe of what's going on if you were listening and you were watching this story unfold. And this particular story, there are four main characters, right? There's Satan, Adam, Eve, and there's God. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is just kind of maybe expand on our understanding of, of who these different uh, characters, who these different figures are within the story, and, and help us to understand really what's going on. So look at Genesis 3.1. We're going to start with the serpent. Genesis 3.1 says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. So the problem with the story Um, as it first starts out, is it takes a pretty big leap of faith because there's a talking snake. Most of us have not experienced a talking snake, and if you have, we should probably talk after the service. Um, But for the the record, it it, it requires us to just stop and and just trust that the story is true because it's not something that's in our, our experiences. So a couple questions about this, this serpent. The serpent is Satan. Well, who is Satan? What we need to understand about Satan is Satan is a spiritual being. He was created by God. He was an angelic being. He had all kinds of beauty. He was put in in an important position as an angelic being. And something happened to him. So I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. You don't need to look them up. But it gives us a clue as to who Satan is. So Isaiah 
writes in Isaiah 14, 13, writing about Satan, he says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high God. That's a key phrase for us to hold on to. I will be like God. Satan is a created angelic being, and he desires to be like God. If you look at Ezekiel uh, 28, it's, he's again talking about Satan. He says, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth, and I made you a spectacle before the kings. So this beautiful, created, angelic being becomes full of pride because of his beauty, because of his splendor, and he desires to, to be above God. He actually says being with God isn't enough. Being in the company of God isn't enough. I want to be like God. I think it's fascinating when we unpack the story, we're going to see that the downfall of Adam and Eve and the downfall of Satan are really the same root problem. They both wanted to be like God. So if you look at Genesis 3-5 and what we read, it says, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. To be like God is the very heart of, of all of our sin. Because see, God says to us, he says, look, I am going to give you a path. I'm going to give you a way to live in which you're going to have abundant life. You can have joy and you can stand in my presence and you can have, have all of this. God is still saying that to you and I. He said, here's a path that leads to righteousness. Here's a path that leads to community with me. But what we say is, well, I don't particularly like all of that path, and I want to be my own God. I want to be like you. I want to make my own decisions. So we wander off of the path. We're kind of like adolescent uh, people, kids or whatever, that just that, that think to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter what God says. I want to do what I want to do. And in that process of doing what we want to do, we create all kinds of havoc and torment in our lives. We have the same problem. We want to be our own gods. So why does Satan appear as a serpent? Why doesn't he just appear, appear as an angelic being? Well, the, most scholars would say it's because he is a spiritual being that he needed a means by which to communicate. So even Martin Luther says that, let us therefore establish in the first place that the serpent is real. It's a real snake, but that that it's one that has been entered into and taken over by Satan. Really, the snake is just a vehicle by which Satan can have this conversation with Adam and Eve. So look at verse 4, because I think this is important for us to see. What, what Satan does is it says that Satan is more crafty than, than any other animals. What he's saying is he's, he's got this way of tricking people. And if we look at verse 4 and we hold on to verse 4, we'll realize that there is a theme that's used over and over in trying to get us astray as well. So it says, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There is embedded in this a lie and a truth. And this is Satan's scheme. He will actually take the words of God. He will think that, take the things you know about God, and he'll take that truth, but he'll use that truth to suck you in, and then he'll, he'll give it a lie to go with it. So if you look at that particular passage, the, the lie is you certainly won't die. But the truth is God really did say that they would know something that they didn't know if they ate from the fruit. There is this lie wrapped in the truth. And if you think about it, this is Satan's scheme. Think about what Satan did with Jesus in the desert. He used scripture to try to trick Jesus. So he used a little bit of truth that was hiding the lie in order to try to tempt Jesus. And that's what he does with us. He'll, he'll, he'll make us think it's okay, and, he'll, and we'll look at it and we'll say, that's, that's kind of what the scriptures say, but, but if we stop and we listen, we find out that there's something different going on. 
Think about this. What if, what if Eve had just stopped? What if she had really just thought this whole thing through? What if she had just said to herself, to herself, well, I don't know who I should trust. Should I trust God or should I trust this talking snake? Right? It seems crazy to us. Like, if you ever have this opportunity, don't trust a talking snake. <laughs> Safe to say, right? We know this in hindsight. But what if she had stopped? What if she had paused? So we talk about around here that the heart of discipleship is to hear and obey. And the only way that you can hear and obey is to practice a discipline of stopping. We say we, that you need to learn to pause and not be reactionary, but in your pausing, you need to stop and ask yourself some questions. What did God really say? What if Eve had stopped and she just said to Adam, who was standing right there, Adam, what exactly did God say? And they would have talked about it, and they would have, they would have had this dialogue about it. And what if she said, well, well what do you think we should do, Adam? What, what do you think, or what if Adam had said, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's think about this for a minute. But there was this, there was this impulsiveness that took place. Instead of, of this temptation of, of taking the, the fruit, they would have stopped and they would have realized, wait, God really did say that we're not to eat from it. And we have all of this in front of us. Why would we jeopardize all that we have? So we have this opportunity to learn something from what happened to Adam and Eve, to stop, to pause, and to, and to ask ourselves, what did God really say? What does God really desire for me? What is truth? How do I walk this path? So that gives us a little picture of Satan. Let's talk about Adam and Eve for just a minute. What do you suppose life was like in the garden? What do you suppose life was like for the first couple? I mean, think about it. They live in this garden, and what do we know about the garden? Well, we know that they weren't waiting for a snowstorm to come, right? So they had a different day than what we had as we went to bed last night and got up this morning, and we probably all opened our blinds and looked outside to see how bad it really was. None of that existed. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, they're naked, so it wouldn't be cold because they wouldn't be very comfortable. It wouldn't be snowing. We also know that they're in this garden that produces this amazing fruit. So we know that it's not a desert climate. We know that it's not too cold a climate. As a matter of fact, it's a perfect climate for growing, growing fruit. It's perfect temperatures, perfect humidity. It's, it's San Diego 24-7 on its best day. It's just this perfect living environment to, to be in. But it's more than that. There's this, this picture of, of no natural disasters. There's no storms. There's, there, there's the, the, it actually says that the earth is at peace with itself. There isn't all of the, of the natural disasters going on that we experience. And even more than that, they were in harmony with God. And because they were in harmony with God, they were in harmony with one another. So there's, there's like this physical paradise, but there's also this relational paradise. And what do they do with their time? They work. Now, some of you think that doesn't make sense. Why would God put them in paradise and make them work? But the work that they did was different than the work that we typically have to do. The work they did was life-giving. The work they did was, was productive. The work they did gave them something to express themselves. The truth of the matter is God made our bodies and our minds to be active and productive. And so he gave them a place where they could be active and productive. The work that they did was life-giving, joy-producing. What they did is they tended the garden, but the garden produced fruit on its own. So really they were harvesting and, and maybe trimming the trees and, and doing the things, but, but they weren't battling the elements. They weren't fighting to make the, the earth work for them. The, the earth produced, and they had this opportunity to, to do work. So think about this. Have you ever had a, a work day where you went into work and there was no relational conflict, and everybody was super productive, and they were producing what they were produ supposed to produce. 
where, where there was this peace and harmony that is in place. There were no problems. It was like the perfect work day. Have you ever had a day like that? Some of you are saying, absolutely not. And the truth of the matter is we probably haven't. That's really the result of the fall. The difficulty that we have in working is really part of the fall. So if you look at, at 3.17 and 19, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. This is after the fall. It says, Through pain and toil you will eat from the ground all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat the food. Something changed in the fall. It was no longer the ground didn't just naturally produce on its own. Now it took sweat and, and toil and hard work to make the ground produce. And, but before that, it was this paradise of, of, of perfect work, of life-giving work. It's a beautiful picture. So Adam and Eve, they, they work, but they love their work, and they have relational harmony, and they live in this, this world that's just, it's perfect. In a way that we can't even comprehend, it's perfect. It's just this, this beautiful picture. And the thing is, if you really uh, study the, the story, most scholars would say that, that what would happen is they would work in the garden and in the evening or in the cool of the day, God would come and he would walk through the garden and he would find Adam and Eve and they would spend time together. That as we hear this story, the, the, the idea of God coming in the cool of the day and, and calling their name, that that was happening throughout their time in the garden when they were living in this paradise. God would come as the work day was winding down in the cool of the evening, and he would call their name. The truth of the matter is they lived with no curtains, no shame, no guilt, no feelings of inadequacy, total access to God. It's hard for us to understand because we, have, we really don't have any kind of, of moorings in any way to, to really comprehend all this. But life really was perfect. And yet Adam and Eve were ungrateful. Yet Adam and Eve said to themselves, this isn't enough. We want more. And so they reached out and they took the fruit in the garden. And in that moment, everything changed. And shame and guilt entered the world. And what's the first thing they do? They hide. They not only hide from God, but they take fig leaves and they sew them together and they hide themselves from one another. In a lot of ways, the fig leaves could represent the first curtains ever. It's a way of hiding from one another. Man sins. So we've looked at Satan and we've looked at, at man, but, but let's take a minute and look at God. Let's think about how God responds to this crisis. And this is really a crisis. He, he comes, but how does he come? Well, let's understand this. God creates Adam and Eve because he wants to share in the community that he has with the Son and the Holy Spirit. So God exists in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. That's the God that we serve. And there's this perfect community. And he says to himself, let's create man and invite man to share in the community that we have. It's our joy to let them experience the thing that we have. It's, a, it's this picture of God not being selfish with what he has, but wanting to share it with all of us. And so he, he takes his community, he creates man, he invites them into this, this amazing relationship. And he says, let their lives bring glory to me. Let their lives be such that the whole world knows that I am God and that I am love. God creates and invites man to live completely without curtains, fully connected and devoted to him, in community with him. In truth, God gives them everything. He gives them this, this picture of abundant life. And Adam and Eve sort of shove it in God's face and they say it's not enough. We want more. 
It's not enough. Everything you've given us, we don't want to be image bearers. We want to be God. And so they take the fruit. And how does God respond? Let me ask the question a little bit differently. How would you respond? I mean, think about it. If you gave someone everything they needed, if you gave to them sacrificially, if you poured out your heart and soul and loved somebody as well as you could love them, if you, if you really just, just thought of, what can I do for this person that would really bless them? What could I do for this person that would help them to be who God has called them to be? If you did all that for someone and they said to you, it's not enough, if they showed this heart of ingratitude, if they kind of pushed you away and said, I, I, don't, I don't really care about all that you've given me. I want more. How would you respond? Would you respond with rage, with anger, with lectures? Would you divorce them? Would you unfriend them on Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Do you write people off? People who have betrayed you in that way, say, I'm done with them. Do you write them off? But how does God respond? The earth doesn't shake. The skies don't become dark. There's no thundering voice coming from the heavens. There's no yelling. There's no rage. He doesn't strike them down with lightning. Now, he could have done all those things. He is God. If he wanted to just strike them dead and start over, he could have. And he doesn't scream, wagging his finger, after all I've done for you. After all I've done for you, this is how you treat me. It's none of that. Look at verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God shows up in the same way he showed up in the days before. As the evening comes, he walks through the garden looking for his children, looking for his friends. I want you to listen for a moment and I want you to engage your imagination. There's a scene that unfolds in the garden that is incredibly familiar to us, but I want to tell it to you in an unfamiliar way. This is called Adam's Song, Our Song. In the cool of the evening, when the day's work is done, God comes and you hear his footsteps. In past, you were like a child. Dad has finally come home. So many times before you heard him, in excitement, you and anticipation, your, your heart skipped a beat. But this time, this time he comes walking through the garden. You hear his footsteps, you hear his voice. So gentle, so inviting. But this time, this time, fear overtakes you. Shame consumes you. Guilt overwhelms you. And you run. You hide. As if the God of the universe can't find you, still you hide. And he comes. And he calls your name. And he calls you out of hiding. No rage. No lecture. Only love only forgiveness. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he covers your shame. In the cool of the evening, you hear his step, and he removes your fear. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he wraps you with love. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he restores your wounded heart. In the cool of the evening, 
your dad has come. When we stop and we look at this story, we have to take note that God is not screaming. He's not in a rage. There's no thunder. There's no lightning. He's not wagging his finger. He's walking in the cool of the day. And he's calling to Adam and Eve. If you look at verse 3, 9, it says, But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? I want to be clear here. God is not confused. God knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they've done. It, it didn't get by God. He wasn't surprised by this. So why does he ask the question, where are you? Because he wants Adam to stop and think. And it's as if he's asking the question of Adam, why are you hiding? Why are you afraid? What's going on inside of you? What's going on in your heart, Adam? What is the deal? What's really happening? I love this because in this moment, Adam actually models something that all of us can learn from. In that moment, he answers the question, and it's this incredible picture of self-awareness that we all need to learn to, to have. So in verses 310, he says, it says, he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. His response is, I was afraid, so I hid. Adam identifies what he's feeling. He identifies his emotion and he identifies his behavior. One of the ways that we can tear down curtains in our lives is to learn to be honest about how we feel, about the emotions that are inside of us. This is the very heart of being mature. To be spiritually mature is to be able to know the emotions that you have and the behaviors that they're causing you. For those of you who don't know, uh, my only daughter, um, well, I guess I have two now that Robbie's married, my daughter Casey, um, left for China on Saturday. So she's literally uh, landing somewhere in China in the next 30 minutes. Um, it's been really hard for me. I, I sent the boys and cried a little. Um, but man, sending your little girl, it's just been really hard. And probably because she's the last kid to desert us. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Um, that's made it harder too. But, but here's the deal. I've just been sad for the week. And I'm so super excited for her, and I'm, I just, I, I love what she's doing, and I'm proud of her. But there's loss in this, right? And so I'm sad. And, and here's what I have to do. I have to ask myself, what is this, this sense of sadness? How is it causing me to behave? What is it causing in me? And the truth of the matter is, I'm probably a little edgy with people. Some might even call it grouchy, but I prefer the word edgy. Seems easier for me to handle. Um, but I'm also distracted. I had a hard time focusing on, on writing this talk. I have a hard time being present with people because there's all this stuff. But the, but the thing for me to learn is to identify, oh, I'm sad. And then I can take that sadness and I can take it back to God and say, God, I don't know what to do with all this, but, but at least I know that I'm feeling sad. Can you enter into that emotion with me? Can you help me not to be too edgy? And can you help me to be present? I asked for the team to even pray for me this morning. Help me to be fully present as I deliver this message today because I'm a little distracted by what's going on with Casey. There is this picture of an emotion and a behavior. Our emotions and our behaviors are inextricably linked. And the link doesn't always have to be negative. When you start focusing your eyes on Jesus, when you have a moment when you realize all Jesus did for you and you, you understand the cross and you, you get your mind around the passion of Christ, the love of Christ, and, and it stirs something deep in your soul, you know what it creates in you? It's an emotion that creates a heart of worship. So there's a, a, a feeling and there's a behavior. 
you have a friend that steps out and, and does something for you and just makes you feel so loved and so encouraged. And in that moment, you realize that you're more willing to take risk. I feel loved, so I'm able to take risks in my life. So you see there's emotion and behavior. If you find yourself going back to a particular sin nature, one of the prayers you could take to God is, God, show me the emotion that's behind this sin. Show me what's in my spirit that causes me to go back there. And maybe you'll find out that it's, that it's depression or it's sadness or it's fear. There's all kinds of emotions. And if we learn to identify our emotions, we can invite God into the process and we, re, and we begin to have inner healing and, and move in a way that's more mature. We're going to close with a song. And as the, the, the musicians come up with the, to, to do the song, I also want to invite the prayer team. I'd like you to come down now. So I'd like the prayer team to already be down here. And I just want to invite you to be honest with God. And as they sing this song, I want to invite you to, to, to listen to what God might be saying. God is walking through the garden. There's no rage. There's no lecture. He's not coming with a hammer. God's inviting you to something. And what he wants to do is he wants to remove your shame. He wants to remove your guilt. He wants to remove your unforgiveness. He wants to take those things that you're holding on to that are keeping you from being all that God wants you to do. And he's so gently walking through the garden in the cool of the day just saying, come to me. Come to me and allow me to do this good work in your spirit. So they're going to sing, and my invitation to you is to come. If you want to be prayed for, we have people who are willing to pray for you. If you just want to pray on your own, that's okay too. Just kneel here and pray. But bring that desire to God because he is walking through the garden calling your name. Lord, I pray that even as we sing this song that you would continue to move in our hearts. Help us to recognize that you are not raging over us, that you are just inviting us back into sweet communion with you back into this amazing community that you have with the Son and the Spirit. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, who came to remove the curtain so that we could live in community with you, so that we could walk up to your throne, so that we could stand in this room and pray directly to you. No one has to be an intermediary for us. In Jesus' name. If you feel the need, come. Come.